Well, good evening. Trust you had a good Thanksgiving. Um, my wife and I had a wonderful time. We went down and we did Thanksgiving dinner in two hotel rooms that we had put together so that we could just have some time with our family. We were there for three nights and um, I drove back uh, this afternoon and it's good to be here. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Greg and um, I'm one of the pastors here and it's been a long time since I've been in the saddle up front and so uh, I ask you to be a little bit more uh, patient with me. Um, I want to start out my message in a different way, uh, if we can, and it's going to be with a, a line, and it's a, a statement that I'm going to share. Uh, you're never going to see it on the screen. You're going to hear it throughout the message at different junctures. Sometimes it'll make sense to you where I placed it, and sometimes you won't have any idea of why I placed it there. But I want this to be in the back of your mind uh, during our time together. And the statement is this, God is not confined by your situation. God is not confined by your situation. And by that I simply mean this, sometimes we think that we can mess up in such a way that God cannot help us. Sometimes we have a situation come our way, we have no idea how to approach it, how to, to change it, how to work through it. Maybe there's a conflict, maybe there's a, a problem at work, uh, maybe it's just a personal thing that you've been working on and, it, and, and you're stuck and your thinking is, this is my fault and God cannot help me here. God cannot help me in this. So I wanna say it again, God is not confined by your situation. About two years ago, I shared a little piece of a message by a guy by the name of Pastor Alistair Begg. He's from Cleveland, Ohio. And I, some of you are gonna say, well, you shared it with us before. You, you, you're not really good. You, you take other people's stuff, and, and that would be true. And, and I just want you to know, this is something that's going to set uh, the foundation of what we're gonna be talking about uh, for the next few minutes. So I want you to imagine you fell into a deep sleep and you found yourself standing in line waiting to get into heaven. And when it was your turn, the angel behind the kiosk asked you, why should I let you be in heaven? Why should I let you be let into heaven? What would you say? And if you answer the question, or I answer the question in the first person, we have immediately got it all wrong. If we say anything along the lines of, because I accepted, because I believe, because I have chosen to follow, because of my personal faith, or because I am this, because I've done that, if we, our response is anything like that, we have erred. We've missed the mark. We're in the wrong. We must respond to that question in the third person. That's this. Because he, because he. And to explain this to you, I want you to think of the thief on the cross. You know what the picture looks like. Jesus is in the middle cross and he has a thief on the left side of him on the cross and a thief on the right side. And I want to focus on just this one thief on the right side. The scene is surreal. And the thief is hanging on a cross because he is guilty. He's getting what he deserves. 
This is not a, mis a case of mistaken identity. He wasn't framed. This is not a situation where the wrong man got blamed for the crime. No, it's not that at all. He is a number one poster child for a life gone wrong, for a life lived poorly. And no one, no one is feeling bad for him. He had plenty of opportunities to change his ways, but those days for making changes have come and gone. That ship has sailed, and he is going to die. There is no hope for him. And again, that line, God is not confined by your situation. Something crazy, amazing, immense, unsuspecting is about to happen for this thief. And someday, when I get to heaven, one of the thing, first things I want to do is I want to find this guy. I want to pull him aside and I want to ask him, how in the world did that shake out for you? Because there you were, cussing Jesus at Jesus, you and this other thief friend of yours. You're heaping insults on Jesus. And you, you never got baptized. You never went to Bible study. You didn't know a thing about church membership. There was no confession, no remorse, absolutely no repentance. There, you, there was no owning your own stuff, and yet, and yet you made it. You, you, you made it. How did you make it? Imagine the angel that day when this guy, this thief, shows up at the gates of heaven. The angel gives the guy a quick look, glance, a look over, and immediately he's at quandary of what this fellow is doing here in this line. It's obvious he's not one of the regulars who would come in. And the angel, after a while, asks him, can I help you? And this, this thief goes, um, I, I don't know. Okay, what, what are you doing here? The angel asks, I, I, I'm not sure. What do you mean you don't know and you're not sure? I, I don't know. You really don't know why you're here. I really don't know. He's baffled, so he goes, um, you stay here. I, I don't move. I'm going to be back. I need to get my super, supervisor. And the angel leaves for a little bit, comes back with his supervisor. The supervisor takes one look at this guy, and he too's thinking, this guy doesn't belong. And so he asks this guy, he says, um, sir, we just have a few questions for you. First of all, are you, are you, um, are you clear on the... This, this matter of justif justification by faith. And he looks at him and goes, I've never heard that before. Okay, hold on for a second. Let's just straight, it goes straight to the doctrine of scripture immediately. You, you surely know about that. And the angel, or the, the thief looks at him with completely blank. He shrugs his, his shoulders. He has no clue what the guy is talking about. Eventually, out of frustration, this supervisor asked him this, then on what basis are you here? And the thief says this, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. That is the only answer that works. Jesus said it this way, no man can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them to me. And what, what we're seeing in that verse is simply this. God woos us. He woos us. Jeremiah 31.3 says this. God says, 
I have loved you, O my people, with an everlasting love. With loving kindness, I have drawn you to me. Another translation that says this. God says, I have drawn you close. God woos us. He steps towards us. He takes the initiative. He opens up his arms to embrace us. And it has nothing to do with us. Except God stepped towards us. And the word for that is grace. There's a lot of verses you can hang your hat on about this matter of grace. Probably Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is probably the, the best get, go, go get to a classic on grace. And it says this, because of his kindness, you have been saved through trusting Christ. And even trusting is not of yourselves. It too is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good we have done, so none of us can take any credit for it. God is not confined by your situation. It's grace. This is all a work of God. It gets even better according to John 1:16. And out of this fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. And that is gonna sound weird to you, but I was trying to think, what is grace in place of grace already given? We've, we've already had a heaping pound pile of grace given to us. And I overate this Thanksgiving, and my wife kept putting food on my plate. And that verse came to my mind. We are given grace in place of grace already given. For those of us who know Christ, and for those of us who have an accurate view of ourselves, we get grace. We, of all people, should be most grateful. I want to share a story with you. A story that you are so familiar with, in fact, familiar, so familiar with that as I begin to share it with you, you will struggle with wanting to jump ahead in the story. And some of you have heard the story so often, you immediately think to yourself, uh, Greg, I've heard this story a hundred times. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, next, please. And my prayer is, in the next few moments, that all of us in this would see something today in it that would be fresh and new. One of the things that I've been struggling and wrestling with in, in church, I've been doing ministry for 45 years now, which is a long time. But the thing that concerns me most about church and church people is that it's, it's easy to hear and not hear. It's easy to, to um, what's the word I'm looking for? Easy to... Uh, stir the mind, but not touch the heart. And that concerns me greatly today. And so I want this to be fresh and new, and I don't know, we're gonna need God in order to, to have that happen. And to help that happen a little bit, I'm going to share a message, another message piece that I came across entitled this, God running after humanity who barely want to be found. And it might surprise you that this is one of my persons I 
like to read the most right now, and his name is Richard Rohr. He is a Franciscan priest. And sometimes in this little share I'm gonna share with you, I want you to know I use his exact words and phrases, and if you hear something that's good, it was probably his exact words and phrases. And if it doesn't make sense, and it kind of feels weird and out of line, that would be my stuff, okay? So let's make that clear. This story we're looking at comes from the Gospel of Luke. And if you do any study in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll understand that Luke, probably more than the other three combined, give us the most accurate picture of the image of what God is really like, down to the core. And if you really want to know the heart of God, what it is like, this is the story that you should zero in on, that you should drop anchor, sit a spell, and really take in. It's one of those beautiful stories in all of scripture. And it starts out with this verse in Luke 15. A man had two sons, and the younger of the sons said to the father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me. And that sets this drama, this story into motion. Normally you don't ask for a father's inheritance while he is still alive, but the son does this much to the irritation and shock of those who heard it for the first time and for those who understand it even now. But the son does this. So we know right away that he's an arrogant young man who is all about himself. He has no respect for his father for sure or his family. And yet the father divides the property among his two sons. A few days later, the young son collects all his belongings. Where is he going? He doesn't care anyone, anywhere but where he is now at home. He wants to be a long way off to do his own thing and be his own man. And so he sets out for a distant country, and while he is there, he squanders his inheritance. And when everything is gone and nothing is left, a severe famine struck that country, and he found himself in dire need. This is what men and women in AA or in recovery call hitting the bottom or reaching the point of powerlessness. He doesn't know what to do. He hires himself out to some local citizens who sent him to their farm to take care of pigs. In Jewish culture, pigs were off limits and they were not to be eaten nor touched. To do so was considered a dirty act and if you associated with pigs, you would defile yourself in doing so. So what that means for this young Jewish man is simply this. He is now an outcast to his own people, and he's crossed some lines, and he's really hit rock bottom. He was so hungry that he actually longed to eat his fill of what the pigs were eating. And nobody gave him anything and he was so all alone. And again, I give you that line, God is not confined by your situation. One day he thought to himself, that's one thing that he had a lot of on his hands, and it was thinking. Lots of time to think. So that we're clear, my guess is that much of his think tank time was negative. It had to be front and center. It was unavoidable. 
he was where he was, doing what he was, because it was his fault. My guess, if you've ever been there where you've messed up, failed, fallen, you understand that. Guilt has a way of intensifying. Shame is huge. The thought, it's my fault. Nobody else is to blame. What have I done? What am I thinking? He had a lot of time to think, and one day he had a good thought. He said to himself, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough to eat? The answer to that was all of them. Why? Because his dad was a good man who took care of the people he was responsible for. And the boy said, here I am, a son, dying of hunger. I shall get up, and I'll go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as you would one of your hired workers. That's a little humbling. This cocky kid who took half of the estate and threw it away. But it's his only hope. He knows if he stays there, he will die there. So he got up and he went to his father. And probably for me, one of the most, my most favorite verses in all of the Bible, one of the most beautiful lines that is in this story is this. It says, while he was still a long way off. That bell was great. Did anybody hear that bell? It said that was perfect. So we have this son here, and I want you to catch this line. The image for every person who has ever done it wrong, which if you aren't familiar with yourself well enough yet, that is all of us. We never really get back to God. The Bible says it this way. Please catch this. This is from Romans. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks after God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Which means that if we come to the bargain table and God is on the other side, we got jacked. We bring nothing to the table. Nothing that is gonna give us penance or forgiveness or hope. I was thinking about this and this is, I, this is, if you run the church, I usually preach on the prodigal at least once a year because I feel like it's my story. I wonder how many times that son got up and started walking and then stopped and sat down going, this is not gonna work. I don't deserve, my father's not gonna forgive me. I wouldn't forgive me. I wonder how many times he got up and he started walking back to the pig pen and then sat down again. What am I thinking? I gotta go home. I will not, I will not survive this. I will die. And then he'd get up and he'd start walking and he'd sit down and he goes, he will not take me back. I wouldn't take myself back. And then this line again. God is not confined by your situation. And it's in this hole, this, this dark hole, that God comes running to us. 
it says, while he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son. And there's so much in that verse, I would love to unpack it for you. But the bottom line is, his father never gave up on his boy. And his father was looking and watching the horizon, hoping someday, some way, his son would find his way home. And I want you to think about that phrase. Who would have pictured God running towards us? Towards me. By the way, this is why this particular text in the Bible probably has converted more people than any other text or any group of textings combined. Because we're moved with that. Because we know our stuff. The more we know ourselves, the more we know our stuff, the more we have to say to ourselves, there's no way God would ever take me. He ran to his son. He could not get to his son fast enough. And he embraced him. He kissed him. He was overwhelmed with emotion. And it's in this father's just gushing all over his son that the boy that starts to repeat his memorized prayer. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Now I want you to know, up until this last week or so, I saw this differently. And it's this. I thought the son was just going through the rhetoric just to get what he wanted. But he really, his heart was probably in on this. Well, my one shot, I'm going to let my dad know I was wrong. And it's in this, this piece of the story. And don't miss this. Notice God's response to the unworthy, self-hating son. Again, which is all of us. The father, you read the text, the father cuts him off, doesn't hear his confession. Cuts him off, doesn't hear his infection, infection, affection. You know what he says? Quick, bring the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. You know what that means? You're back in the family, buddy. You're home. Put sandals on his feet. Take the fat and calf, slaughter it. Let us celebrate with the feast because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life again. He was lost and has been found. In the New Testament, read the New Testament, Jesus' constant image of eternal life or heaven is a wedding feast, a banquet. And yet, I want you to understand, all through the scriptures, and I mean the New Testament, there's this division that exists between those who are wanting to come to the banquet and those who, who are not willing to come. And those who aren't willing to come won't come because this isn't the banquet they expected or they wanted. And the second son symbolizes that for us. I, I'm gonna submit something to you and I want you to really be careful with it because if I don't, I think there's a group of us here who would raise their hand and say, I, I'm the prodigal son. 
And then there's a group over here that would raise their hand and say, I'm the elder son, but I'm better than that guy. And in the church today, there's a lot of pointing finger and people saying, I'm the better guy. Like many of us in this room, me included, a lot of us have done it right. We make it a priority to come to church regularly. We serve on ministry teams. We sing the songs. We take notes on the message that week. We give financially to the church and the ministries we support. And it says the older son had been out in the field. Why? Because it was the right thing to do and he was responsible, but his little brother wasn't. And there's a lot of animosity there. On his way back, the older brother, he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dance, and he called one of his servants, and he asked what this might mean. And the servant said, your brother has returned home, and your father has slaughtered the the fat and calf because he has him back. And I want you to understand, whether you're the prodigal son or the older son, all the father wants is to have his son back. God doesn't want you to be perfect. God just wants you at the party, sitting at the table. But scripture tells us the older son became angry. He refused to enter the house. His father even came out to try to plead with them to join them. And the older son says this, look, all these years I served you. And he probably did. And not once did I ever disobey your orders, and that was probably true. But here's the deal. It didn't make him a loving person. But it did make him an entitled person. I've earned this. You owe me. This isn't fair. And the older son was proud because he did it right. My guess that day that he came back and he heard the music, he probably was the first one in the field and the last one out of the field that day. He was proud, he gave himself an A. And if he had a theme for his life, it was this, I am better than him. He says to his dad, you never even gave me a goat to feast with with my friends. But when this son of yours, you catch that, don't you? This son of yours, not this brother of mine, this son of yours, who swallowed up your property and threw away generations of hard work and responsibility, for him, you slaughter the fattened calf. Now, I think it's pretty clear to us that the father in the story is God. It's pretty clear. And as I said earlier, If I asked you to raise your hand, if you're a prodigal son, there's a group of you who would raise that hand. And if I said, raise your hand if you're one of the older son, if you're the older son, there'd be people who'd raise their hand. But here's the thing I want you to understand that I think in this story. I think it's both and. I think if we were really honest, most of the time we pick and choose whatever serves us best at the moment. If we're the young son who needs a break and the old son who wants to break him. You see, we can return and accept undeserved love and undeserved forgiveness, or we can say, I deserve more. The father says to the older son, you are here with me. 
always. Everything I have is yours. We must celebrate now and rejoice because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Richard Worth says this, on some levels it seems to me that we need to be lost before we can be found. You need to do it wrong before you can get it right. But it's worth noting that the older son didn't admit or offer that he had ever done anything wrong. And that's the dead place. And that's the proud place. And it's odd in a way that, not odd, but maybe brilliant, that Jesus doesn't resolve the story for us. We don't know how it played out. There's no indication anywhere else in the New Testament did the older brother come to the party. The last we saw him, he was outside, outside pouting, blaming and hating his brother. And now he's full of pride and bitterness and entitlement all of which probably caused the brother to skip the banquet altogether. And that's an easy place to end up when you don't get what you think you deserve. But who of us deserves anything? See, the truth of the gospel is this, that in the end, my sin will never outweigh God's love. That the prodigal can never outrun the father that I am not measured by the good I do, but by the grace I accept. And that living a life of faith is not lived in the light, a lot of times it's discovered in the dark. All that we have is a gift. Everything we have is a gift. This last 13 weeks we've been in a series and you hear, as you've heard us say many times up here, what's the next step? Well, I wanna ask you to do this. Don't do a next step right now. Stop, step back, and think through what God has done for you. Stop, step back, and think through what God has done for you. Because it's all, everything is a gift. And the delight of the Father is that we would sit at his table to celebrate and to be grateful, to have his kids around the table. That is the meaning of the banquet. God wants you at the table. Let's pray. Father, grace, it's all grace. And I look back at my life and there's times when I was the the proud older son, thinking highly of myself, being entitled and not giving any mercy. And yet at the same time, Father, I'm grateful because I was a prodigal son. And you stepped towards me and embraced me long before I thought I deserved to be braced by you. Father, this last weekend we celebrated Thanksgiving, there are people here who I know because I talked to a few this night. Some of us, this is the first holiday without a loved one. It's usually at the table. 
Maybe it's a situation where the marriage tanked and this is the first holiday that you weren't together and you had a divided family. Father, maybe, maybe we're stuck. We're just stuck. And what we need is we need just to come to you and come to the table and take the gift of grace that you offer freely. Father, gratefulness is key. It's key in life. And for us that walk with Christ and know Christ, we understand it has not just extreme value, but value for all things. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for stepping towards us and help us to be those who give and step towards others. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Greg. Hey, we are so glad that you are here with us. We were just praying before the service. You were prayed for, by the way. Um, every time you come, we pray for you. And so uh, we, pray, we were praying that, uh, recognizing that you're not here by mistake. You are not here by mistake. And we hope and we pray that in one of these services with us, uh, that you take one thing, that you take one thing away. God reminds you of something. Uh, he he uh, showers his love on you. Um, and this is a good reminder for me. It is all a gift. As we head into the Christmas season when gifts are wrapped and under the tree and packages, this is the gift. This is the gift. So before you go, I want to I wanna share a quick three things. By the way, my name is Ezra. Um, that was not one of them. That was for free. Um, three things. If you are new with us, before you leave today, would you please... Stop by the welcome desk. We would love to know if you're checking us out, seeing if this is a place for you. We'd love to get to know you, uh, get your name, and we have a gift for you there. So stop by the welcome desk. If you're online, welcome also. And I'm um, so glad you were with us. Click that button, and we will, be, uh, we will be in touch with you. Second thing, if you need prayer, if you need prayer after this service, we will have a prayer team down front. Uh, there is nothing magical up here except that we are together and we're praying. And so come if you need prayer for anything. We are glad to be with you in that. And finally, Christmas is coming. And Christmas is a time when uh, a lot of people come to church for the only time of the year. And they get to hear about Jesus. And if they can come with you and hear about Jesus, we believe that he will move in their heart. And we believe that with all of us, he will speak to us and speak through us. And that, uh, and that their, their guest, being guest here would be good. So if you would, think about who you might invite to our Christmas services uh, coming, up, coming up in a month. You have a month to think about it. But invite your friends. Invite your neighbors. We would love, love for them to hear about Jesus. Even if it's the only time the whole year, it will not go on empty ears. So think about that. That's all. That's my three things. Thanks for coming. We are so glad you are here. We love you, and we will see you next week.